Well, we have come uh, to the last week in this series, and I'm sure some of you are glad about that, but I do hope, I do hope that as we talked about in the very first week, that uh, no matter where you find yourself in life, whatever uh, state of relationship you in, you're in, you have found this book on the Song of Solomon to be uh, beneficial to you. I'll never forget uh, the first time I heard this, years and years ago, taught by Tommy Nelson. At the end of it, I sat back and I just couldn't help but thinking to myself, I can't believe this is in the Bible. I mean, this was written 3,000 years ago, and yet God's Word can still guide us today in this area of love and relationships. This morning, we closed this series, and I'm going to talk what I think is really kind of the glue or the cornerstone or whatever image it is you want to use that you build a marriage upon, and it comes down to this word, commitment. Commitment isn't a word we hear so much anymore in our world today, unless you're talking about men who are afraid of it, of course, but commitment is critical. It is critical if we want to build marriages that not just survive, I mean, surviving's great, but we want to build marriages that thrive, right? And commitment is the cornerstone of that. So we're going to finish our study in Song of Solomon with this challenge. How do we create marriages that thrive? How do we as Christians fight the trend in our culture of increasing divorce rates and look to God's word as our guide in love and relationships? Well, one of the ways we're going to do that is with this idea of commitment. We, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this book, Song of Solomon. We have met Solomon and his wife. We have seen them from the very beginning of the relationship walk through things like attraction, dating, courtship. We saw them, you know, uh, seal the covenant of their marriage with sex, and we talked about that. We talked about conflict. Last week, we talked about romance and how important it is to keep the fire going in our marriages. And this week, we end with this big idea. I mean, those are all things to build on with your marriage, but where's the base? Where's the foundation? It starts here. It starts with commitment. Now, one of the things I love personally about being about part of this church for the last 12 years, and I know some of you agree with this, is how multi-generational we are. And what I mean by that is we have people right here who have been married like 40, 50, 60 years, and as a newbie, I want to ask the question like, how do you do that? How do you build a marriage like that that doesn't just survive but actually thrives? And at the end of this whole day, we're going to get to hear from one of those couple. I'm really excited uh, for what they want to share with us because enough about me talking, right? So they're going to share with us. But I've talked to enough of them to know. I've talked to enough of them to know that the way you stay married 40, 50, 60 years, and it's not just like, oh, this is miserable, but like actually building a good marriage, it comes down to commitment. You see, for many people, love, when we think of the word love, it's a feeling that comes and goes. But in their minds, if you're married that long, love comes down to that word. It's a commitment. And we will work on it no matter what. And we are going to talk about that in this last section of the book. This is really a small section of this book, but it's packed with some awesome wisdom. We're going to learn the keys to making a marriage last and thrive. So if you were here with us last week, you know uh, we left off in chapter 8, verse 4. So we're going to pick it up right where we left off in chapter 8, verse 5. Hopefully if you didn't get the notes, you have them and you're ready to go. But this couple is returning here from some romantic time at the Ritz, if you recall. And they're coming home. 
And on their way home, her girlfriends, her posse, we've seen them throughout this book, they're waiting for them at the city. And here's how this, this section starts. They say, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? That's so cool right there. To her friends, this woman is basically unrecognizable at this point, is what they're saying. This relationship with this man has so encouraged her, so elevated her. She once described herself as swarthy. Don't look at me. You remember that in the very beginning? And now her friends are saying she's been transformed. She has been transformed. We don't even recognize her anymore. And, and then the rest of verse 5, uh, Solomon speaks and he says, Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. That's kind of a cryptic verse, but again, in this book, it's been poetry, so it's using imagery. The apple tree in, uh, in Israel was the representation of love. It's the place where romance happened. I mean, it was where the sweet-smelling fragrances were. The fig tree, uh, if you read scripture, is often the place of meditation. And then the olive tree is almost always referred to as a symbol for the nation of Israel, but the apple tree is a place for love. And so when he says, beneath the apple tree I awakened you, your mother was in labor and gave you birth, the best commentator I've read on this says, what he's saying here is, you were born for me. From the very beginning, before you were even born, God providentially meant for us to be Together, He was behind our love. Now, I want you to remember a story in Genesis when, God, when Abraham tells his servant to go and find a wife for his son. You remember what he says? He says, you go uh, find a wife for my son. Here's where you're going to go. Here's what you're going to look for. And by the providence of God, who shows up? Rebecca. Now, what's interesting to me, it's always been interesting about that story, is what Abraham doesn't say. He doesn't say, I want you to go to this specific well where you're going to find this specific girl, and then you're going to bring that girl home. What he says is, here are some characteristics and traits I want you to look for in a girl. And if I believe, I trust that God will providentially provide, provide her, bring her home with you. This goes back to the very first week in this series, doesn't it? When we talked about, it's not so much about finding the right person. It's about what? It's about finding and becoming the right type of person. It's about finding and becoming the right type of person. When we do that, God is providential in who he brings into our lives, but you should just be focusing on becoming and finding the right type of person. God's providence will take care of the rest. So again, all I'm saying here is what Solomon is saying. He's saying our union was God's providence from the very beginning. I have found the right kind of woman because God has providentially provided her for me. Do you believe this still happens today? That God does this? That when you're looking and when you're becoming the right type of person, if it is God's will that he would providentially place someone into your lives, when you're becoming the type of person with the characteristics and traits we've seen throughout this book, when you're looking for that same type of person, does God providentially provide someone in those moments? He absolutely still does. You see, you probably know this by now, but God has a very high view of marriage. A very high view of marriage. We've talked about this. The Pharisees, so high in fact, I just don't think the Pharisees could, could understand it because they're constantly asking Jesus questions. 
And one of the questions uh, they asked him is, when is it okay for a man to leave his wife? Because at that point, a, a man could leave his wife whenever he wanted, on, what, on a whim. And what does Jesus do? He brings them very back to the very beginning in Genesis. And he quotes Genesis and says, God made them male and female. And listen to the rest of this. You know this if you've been to weddings. What God joined together. Who joined it together? God. Providentially, what God providentially joined together, do not separate. I'll ask you, do you believe that the one you are married to is providentially provided for you by God, that he joined you together, if you do. If you believe God has a high view of marriage and he brought you together with your spouse, and we are to heed Jesus' words here, right? What God has brought together, we are going to be committed to make sure stays together. That's why we call marriage, I mean, this has just become words now. We say, well, marriage is a divine institution. It's a divine institution, It is a divine institution. God brought you together so we don't let anything separate it. It's called a covenant. It's called a commitment. Of course, I know it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes marriages end in divorce. Sometimes those divorces are are bitter. Sometimes they're unwanted. Sometimes they're actually wanted. And I guess I would just ask you, is all hope lost at that point? No. What's our verse been throughout this whole series? God can restore the years the locust has destroyed. There is grace. Uh, There is grace. Now, I can't possibly address this huge issue of divorce uh, in a morning like this, but here's what I will do. If this is something throughout this series, and I've talked to enough people to know, you know, this is something you got to wrestle with. Maybe that's where you are. You're wrestling through this. You're asking questions. Here's what I will suggest to you. Pastor Jeff gave a message on this in our Sermon on the Mount series, and it was so wonderfully done. It was filled with grace and truth. So if that's what you're struggling with, what you're wrestling with, hearing through this series, I would encourage you. I'm going to give you the exact date of that message. It's March 14th, 2010. I think you might find that helpful. But here's what we're talking about today. We're talking about how God providentially brings two people together in marriage because he has a high view of marriage. What he has joined, let no one separate. And because of that, this woman now speaks, and she's very possessive of her man in a good way. Possessiveness, not so viewed as so good today, I don't think, but it it should be. It should be. Look at what she says. She says, put me like a seal over your heart. Like a seal on your arm, a seal was something that showed ownership. Picture a king who wore a signet ring, right? And when they would send out an official document, they would take that ring, they would dip it in wax, and they would seal it on the envelope so the person receiving it would know this is coming from the king. And so she's saying to him, basically, our marriage is sealed, You are owned by me, and I am owned by you. We're together until the end. Now, who else is like that in the Bible? Who has sealed us with love? Scripture says our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his people. He does not share you. He will not share me with any other God, with any other idol. He is jealous for his relationship with you. So much so, he has sealed that relationship, if you are in Christ, with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. The Holy Spirit is the seal of God's commitment to you. If you are in Christ, he owns you. 
and you own him. That's love. That's commitment. She says, just like God is jealous for you, I'm jealous for our relationship. I don't want any other woman to have you. No other woman's leaning on your arm. She goes on to say, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as shoal. Shoal is the word used in the Old Testament to describe the place where the dead have their homes. She's basically just saying, once you're dead, you're dead. Death is eternal. And so too is my love. Just like death is eternal, my love for you is eternal. We will go to the grave together. I heard a true story of a couple on the day they got engaged... They went and bought their burial plots together at the graveyard. True story. Now, you might think that's morbid, but think about the message that is. How cool is that? What we're starting together, we're finishing together. We're finishing together. That is commitment. That's commitment. She goes on, it's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This is my favorite description of her love for him in this whole book. Interestingly enough, it's the only time in this book whose name is used. The Lord's. Only time in this book. But she says, my love is like the Lord's love. And the Lord's love, he'll never go back on his promises. And the image she uses there, again, is of the fire. Solomon used this earlier in the book. It's the fire, the pillar of God leading the nation of Israel out of slavery into Egypt because he had made a covenant promise to the nation of Israel. That's exactly what he would do. And he's, she's saying to him, just like God is faithful in his covenant, I will be faithful. My love for you is like that fire that burns In verse 7, their love is persevering. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. Our fire is going to burn even when the floods come. And do floods come in marriage sometimes? Conflict, fighting, bitterness, anger, disappointment. Does that stuff come in marriage? Yep, it comes. And what she's saying, even when those times come, I'm committed to make sure the fire in our love stays burning strong. Do you see how she views marriage? It is a divine commitment that she has made, not just with Solomon. This is where we get so, I think, we don't think clearly about this sometimes as Christians. She's not just making a covenant with Solomon. Who else is she making a covenant with? The Lord. I would just ask, why as Christians do we have weddings in churches? You don't need to do that. You can just go sign the document down at the Justice Department, right? You're married. Why do we do that? Because we understand that marriage is a three-pronged thing, right? Yes, I'm making a covenant with my spouse, but I am also making a covenant with God. I'm making a covenant with God. I declare till death do us part. Till death do us part. That's why we have weddings as a church. The rest of verse 7 says, If a man were to give all the riches of his house for her love, it would be utterly despised. In other words, you can't buy this. You can't go online and click love. No, no. It's like salvation. It's a free gift. You give it, and you get it freely. You get it freely. So this is how they view love. I hope you're noticing this. It is a divine thing. It does not come and go like the world tells us it does. It's a done deal. It's a commitment. Now, in verse 8 and following, we have a strange little paragraph, but basically the purpose of these next verses is to back up what she just said. She said, marriage is a sacred union. 
based on the providence of God. It's to be permanent. And by the way, when I'm saying this word permanent and committed, I hope what you're not hearing is, oh, I got to gut this out till the end. Is that what commitment really is? Commitment is being willing to work on the things we've been addressing throughout this series, okay? Commitment is saying, I'm going to work on romance. I'm going to work on conflict. I'm going to work on my character. I'm going to work on becoming the person Christ has called me to become. It's saying, no matter what, I'm going to make sure that the fire stays lit in this relationship. That's commitment. It's not gutting it out. It's committing to working on it, no matter what. Well, in verse 8, uh, I want you to, if you've been here this whole series, we're going to go look way back now, all the way to chapter 1. And if you recall chapter 1, this young girl was talking about how her brothers were angry with her. Do you remember this, some of you? You remember how they were angry with her and they made her work in the vineyards? Well, in verse 8, her brothers are actually going to speak. So understand, chronologically speaking, they're looking way back now. In many ways, this would be the very first verse of this whole uh, book because they're talking about their sister when she's a little girl. They look at each other, her brothers, and say, we have a little sister and she has no breasts, meaning she hasn't even entered into womanhood yet. So they're looking way back here. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? I think you get that, right? They're like, remember, no dad in the picture. So the brothers are kind of in charge of raising this girl with their mom's help. And so they're like, what are we going to do when some guy comes and wants to marry our sister? We've got to make sure she is prepared for that day. And in verse 9, we see what their standard is. Here's their standard. They say, if she is a wall... We will build on her a battlement of silver. You get what they're saying? Got to spell this one out for you, right? Meaning, if you are morally pure and upright, if you are guided by God's word in your life, in the area of love and relationships, if you are certain to not let the foxes come in and creep in and ruin the vineyard like we talked about in week two, we will bless you greatly. We're going to throw you the wedding feast of all wedding feasts, sister. Your dowry, I mean, we're just going to be glad to give you away to a man like that. But read the rest of verse 9. But if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. I love her brothers, don't you? I mean, you get what they're saying? What's a door do? Open, open, open. If you're immoral, if you're not holding up to God's standards for moral purity, we're locking you in your room, girl. And you're not coming out. You're not coming out until you're ready. I've said it once, I'll say it again. This book, this book is all about passion and it's all about purity. It's both passion and purity. We have couples who come and ask us to do weddings all the time. Obviously, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to get asked to do weddings. It's a great privilege to be a pastor. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's a great joy. But I'll have to say one of the things we, all of us as pastors, are going to ask those couples, in fact, it's on a sheet they have to fill out before they ever come in, is are you living together? You see, in today's world, that's become the norm right? You, you live together before you get married. I mean, that's a great way to prepare yourself uh, for marriage. No, no, it's not. The studies are showing it, it, it isn't. And so we'll ask, are you living together? And if they reply, yes, we're living together, we're going to ask a second question, which is, are you willing to move out and abstain until the day you're married? So I hope what you hear there is, you know, okay, 
Are you willing to now say that's not exactly how God wanted us to do that? Will we do it God's way from this day forward where we're offering grace? We're saying God can restore the years the locust has destroyed. And their answer to that second question is often very telling, right? Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, those questions are so outdated. Those are so critical. Uh, why do you have to be so judgmental uh, like that? What's the big deal? Here's all I'm going to say is one day as pastors, we're going to stand before God. And one of our responsibilities is to make sure we're helping create marriages that thrive. And as we've seen in this series, though sex is a powerful thing, it can also build an illusion in a relationship of health when health may not actually be there. Because the image we've been using is sometimes sex is just like pouring kerosene on a fire without having any actual wood to keep the fire going. And so we have said, listen, you've got to build a foundation. I mean, this is what God's word said. Build a foundation if you really want a thriving marriage. And where does the foundation come from? It comes from the things we've looked at in this series, things like trust, honor, respect, love, humility, and most importantly, pursuing God. First and foremost, in your life and your relationship. A relationship based on sex, though it could be passionate, it could be exciting, it doesn't always have the foundation that is needed to weather the storms when they come. And they will come. They will come. This couple, we've seen it, they built their relationship out of a wall. Out of a wall, a wall of character. They're not doors. They didn't let the foxes come in and ruin their vineyard. Look at what the woman answers her brothers in verse 10. Was she a wall or a door? I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Now, before you get the wrong idea here, what do towers do? They're to tell intruders, stop right there. Stop right there. You're not, you're not allowed in here to warn them. It's a warning. So she says, my breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. And I want you to circle that word then. If you're using your notes, just circle that word, that little word then. Read that verse now to yourself. What do you think she's saying there? I was a wall, then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. What she's saying is at the very moment she decided, I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to be guided in my life by God's word in love and relationships. I'm going to be morally upright. Then, at that moment, then, who did God bring into her life? Solomon. Just watch how this whole book comes full circle right now. I think this is so cool. In verse 11, remember back in chapter 1, she worked in that vineyard? Well, look who owned the vineyard. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. Huh. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Who were the caretakers? Her family. Her brothers, right? Her brothers were the ones who took care of Solomon's vineyard. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. The brothers own, the, the brothers own or they, they kind of rented out this vineyard, right? And who did they have work at one point in that vineyard? Their sister. And she wasn't so happy about it then, was she? My brothers are angry with me. I got sunburned. I mean, she's just not excited about the fact that she's working in this vineyard. But you want to talk about the amazing providence of God. Here's what I want you to notice. This is all I want you to notice. If this girl had decided not to respect the authority of her brothers... At this time in her life, if she was a door instead of a wall, she never would have met Solomon. She never would have met Solomon. She decided, I'm going to become the right type of person. 
I am going to be guided by God's word in love and relationships. And the result is then. Then God had the right person for her. This is a love story, isn't it? What a wonderful love story. Am I the only one that thinks that's cool? It reminds us that when we are guided, not by what the world says, but by what God's word says, when it comes to love and relationship, there can be great joy. There is great reward in that. In verse 12, she comes back to the present. She's using this idea of the vineyard uh, again, and she says, my very own vineyard, my very self, my body, my soul, who I am is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. They used to give him a thousand shekels as the caretakers of the vineyard. Now she's saying, I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you, that's what marriage is, oneness. I'm giving you the best of who I am. But notice at the end of verse 12, she adds this little thing. And 200, 200 shekels are for those who take care of its fruit. Who's she talking about here? We can do this. Who's she talking about? Who's she giving a 20% tip to? Her brothers. Her brothers. So listen, at one point, she's furious with her brothers, right? They were angry with me. They made me work in the vineyard. Now she's saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me to walk with God in this part of my life. Grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, older siblings, I know it's uncomfortable to set standards and rules and, you know, we're going to push against those and it's really weird to talk about purity and these kind of issues today. Here's all I would hope is I hope you push through that and one day my prayer, our prayer is that our children, just like in Proverbs 31, will rise up and call us blessed and they will say, thank you. I didn't like it at first. Thank you. Thank you for helping me walk with God. Isn't that our prayer as parents? If you're a parent, I mean, that, that's my prayer. And if that is how you were raised, if you have parents that are doing that for you, you know, right now, and you're like, uh, 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 thank them. Because all they want is to build a battlement of silver on your life. In verses 13 and 14, the book basically ends with the thing the woman most needs from her husband and the thing he most needs from his wife. They've learned, uh, you know, what do they need most? What's the one thing? So first, what the woman needs and Solomon knows. So he says, oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. What is the thing the woman most longs for in her husband? A man who will sit and listen and care and talk to her. A husband who's going to talk to her. She says, he says, come and talk to me. I'm listening. I'm listening. We're companions. We are friends. We're in this for the long haul. He gives himself. And then in verse 14, she responds to him. If you thought we're done with all the racy stuff, I wish we were, but we get it one more time. Hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. There they are again. The hills of Bethar. <laughs> She's like, come home quickly. Come home quickly and enjoy. Women, married women, I dare you to text your husband someday. Come home, young stag. <laughs> it's a car accident waiting to happen. <laughs> In all seriousness, can you write one word down next to those two verses? It's the word serving. Serving. Do you see what they're doing? As they wrap up this book, do you see what they're doing? They're meeting each other's needs. Now, your needs might not be the same as theirs and so forth, but they're meeting each other's needs. And that's what marriage is. 
That's what other-focused love is. But we live in a world that is telling us, get your own needs met. Self-centeredness. Self-focused. Are we living in a world like that? Just turn on the TV for crying out loud. Or just wake up every morning because that's what I hear. Get yours. It's about me. And yet we're told as Christians we are to flip that upside down. And we are to say other focused. Not self-serving, but serving the spouse that God has given me. Dying to self. And giving my partner my best. And by the way, if this is hard, and it is hard, it's a daily thing for me. If it's hard for you, I just love the fact that God doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't first do for us here, right? Do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ? In a nutshell, it comes down to the idea that he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's love. He is committed to his bride. That's us, the church, remember? He's committed to us so much. He served us by giving his life for us. The best illustration, in my opinion, uh, on this comes from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I printed the whole thing out there on our notes. Can we read that out loud uh, together? It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's love. And do you see the very first verse there? I wish it wasn't there, but it says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And that is true in relationships, it's true in marriage, it's true in life. If you're following on your notes there, if we want marriages that last, again, thrive, put the word thrive, please. If we want marriages that thrive, we must follow Christ's example. This is hard. The more you're willing to put on the servant towel in your marriage like Jesus did in John 13, the more uh, I'm willing to stop saying, well, I wish she did that. If she did that, I'd do this. The more we're willing to just say enough of that and I'm gonna serve the spouse that God has given me the way I know they need to be served, that's when marriage begins to take off. When that stops happening, that's when bitterness begins to take root. The world tells us, get yours. Be concerned about yourself. You're number one. God's word tells us, serve. Serve with an attitude of love. And as we close, I just thought it might be important to, this is a little side teaching here, but really when the Bible talks about the word love, it's three different words in Greek. 
And I just want to, it's on your notes here. You might want to write these definitions down. But filio is the friendship kind of love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? It's a friendship kind of love. Have we seen this couple have that kind of love in their relationship? Oh, yeah. Best friends. Eros is the intimate kind of love. I don't even need to ask you if we've seen that in their relationship. And then agape love is the love that we're talking about right now that was demonstrated for us by Christ. It's the self-giving love, the serving love. And that, friends, that, if you're falling on your notes, for a great marriage, all three must be taking place. Friendship, intimacy, and serving. Okay? I hope this series has been uh, helpful uh, to you and giving you some tools to build that kind of love in your future or current relationships. Let's pray. Lord, I hope it dawns on us in this room right now that when we talk about love, when we talk about filio, eros, and agape, that you have shown us all those. You have called us friend. We can call you friend. You walk with us. You have sealed us. You have called us bride. We can have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And you have given your life for us in the ultimate way so that we might have life in you. Thank you that you demonstrate love in such a powerful way. Help us to do, be people who do the same. Whether we're married or not, in all of our relationships, they will know we are Christians because of our love. Because of our love. Let us go forth and demonstrate the same love you showed for us in Jesus' strength and Jesus' power. Amen. So I told you we're going to close out this whole series. We've invited uh, Frank and Barb Straub to come and uh, share with us. So they're going to make their way forward. Let me just tell you a little bit about Frank and Barb if you don't uh, know their story. They have been married 56 years. Let's just uh, praise God for that. Uh, but the first few years of their marriage, they're... I gotta say, they're the first couple that Peggy and I ever met here, and we didn't know what to think at first, and many of you know what I'm talking about if you've ever met uh, Frank and Barb, but uh, they, uh, they're some of the stories that I've shared. When I shared that story about the man who had no interest in God for the first seven years of their marriage, this is uh, Frank and Barb, and uh, Barb began to pray for him, and God did a, a saving work, quite honestly, in their marriage, and through that experience, they started to travel around the entire country with Stonecroft Ministries, and they would share their story with others, so many around this whole nation have heard their story and have been influenced by them. What I think is so neat is that at this stage in their life, Barb and Frank are uh, mentoring more couples and more individuals than anybody else I know uh, of in this church. Maybe there are others doing it. I just don't know. I'm not saying that, but they are having a 
profound influence on the lives of so many in our church. And so I thought, instead of me closing out this series, I mean, I've only been married 15 years. How about hearing from someone who's been there and done that? So I've asked them to just think about, uh, Frank and Barb, if you could share a couple of things, a few things. Uh, Frank, what would you say to the men of this church? And Barb, what would you say to the women when it comes to marriage? As I would share my first one with you this morning, that has been um, a real wonderful way in which God has shown me how to love my husband more. And for all of you wives this morning, that is pray for your husband. Pray for your husband. Show respect for your husband and love him. And one of my favorites is be his greatest fan, his number one cheerleader and that all leading to serving each other. And just as uh, we heard Steve in his wonderful message he just finished about serving each other, and, and God has shown me that in my relationship with my husband and how meaningful and special it is. It really works. Thank you. Love your wives, men. Serve your wives, and to me, one of the critical areas, communicate with your wife. About, uh, well, I've been retired 25 years, and uh, right about now, uh, we try very hard all the time to uh, meet uh, for coffee and tea together about 2 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon and just talk about our relationship together. Barb's the most important thing in the world to me. My main concern is her well-being and that uh, she has everything that she needs. And we interact together concerning this. Uh, it, it's a wonderful relationship. I well, highly recommend it, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even put them up to this. I didn't know what they were going to share. So when they're sharing the exact same thing, I just told you I feel pretty good uh, about myself. But uh, now, uh, as a way to close this whole uh, series, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to stand again. Sorry. And Frank and Barb, I've asked them if they would just pray over us. Single, Mary, wherever we find ourselves in relationship, let's receive this as a blessing uh, from this couple right now. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as a church family for this past seven weeks in the book Song of Solomon. And Father, we thank you that you've made us a church of both married and unmarried people who can build one another up. I know from our own experience, we all need your grace daily. Help all of us, for we fail to honor marriage at times. Father, we want to pray for those who are newlyweds that they will be learning to honor you and each other in their marriage. Some may be here today who are in marriages that have difficulties. For them, we pray that they will seek your guidance and direction. Father, I want to pray for the wise, that we will show love and respect for our husbands, that we will build them up, compliment them, appreciate them, and be their number one cheerleader. Father, we thank you for good marriages. Help them to keep depending on you. Some here today have been affected by divorce. 
May they know your grace and support from our church family. I pray specifically for husbands that we will love our wives as Christ loved the church. What a role model for us that we treat our wives well, keeping an open line of communication, help husbands and wives to be good friends. Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning in Steve's wonderful message. Your word is a light unto our path. Make us a people, married or unmarried, that esteem your word more than our daily bread and fill us with hope. Once again, Frank and I thank you for saving our marriage several years ago and continuing to teach us to be good stewards of this relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.